Um, We are working through the book of Romans, and as we are working through this, we're in a fairly complex section here in Romans 9 through 11. Um, And I'm bringing this to a conclusion here at the end of chapter 11 with with two messages on chapter 11. And I want to go back and just remind you of something um, to set the stage in the context for this week and next week. Um, A few weeks back, I quoted Dan Hill, who is a new professor of theology at Dallas Seminary, and he said this, "Um, All theology finds its end in doxology. Theology leads to praise. This knowledge about God should lead us to praise. And it says, we learn and study about this great God of the gospel so that we might learn to praise him rightly. And one day, that is what we will do for endless days, and it will be more than enough. Um, one day, we will be praising God. And I want to encourage you, and as I've reminded you in chapter 8 when we were talking about our glorification, um, that, that our future is not just singing on a cloud with a harp somewhere. Um, our future is a new heaven and a new earth that is recreated for us to live in, and God will make his dwelling among us, and, and our lives will be relational at that point. Our lives will be much more like God intended them in the Garden of Eden, where we're relating to one another. The, the things that's different is how we relate to one another. Even that relating to one another will be a praise to God. So we will be praising him by how we live. He will make his dwelling uh, among us, and, and that is where we are headed. And and part of understanding these passages that we're going through here should lead us to praise. And let me be more specific with that. In Romans 9 through 11, what Paul is trying to convince us of is this. God can be trusted. And because he can be trusted, we can praise him. The reason that's important is because in chapters 1 through 8, he has told us all of these promises of the gospel that we have been justified even though our sins separated us from God. By grace, through faith, we are justified, made right with God. We're reconciled in relationship with Him. We're adopted into His family. Um, We have peace with God. All of these great blessings that come because of what Christ has done for us, even though our sins separated us, chapters 1 and 3, by grace we are saved and set right with God, chapters 4 and 5. And then we're in a process of sanctification, chapters 6 and 7, that leads ultimately in chapter 8 to our glorification. These are great promises. Just think about it. Sin separates us, but then God has saved us. He's going to sanctify us. He's ultimately going to glorify us. The question that Paul raises that he answers in 9 through 11 is, he's made all these great promises. Can you trust him? Particularly because of what's happened, that God was dealing with the nation of Israel, but Israel has rejected Christ. And so now God has invited all of these Gentiles. Does that mean that God is not going to fulfill any promises to the Jews, and what he's going to say is this. God can be trusted because of exactly what he has done. Now, in these chapters, it raises a question as well. Can God be trusted given the nature of what, what's going on in our salvation? Um, the chapters raise the question this way. Um, did I choose God or did God choose me? Um, When I read chapter 9, it sure looks like God chose me. And when I read chapter 10, it sure looks like I need to choose God. (laughs) Did God choose me or did did I choose God? Well, let me ask you a similar question. Um, Is light a wave or a particle? may be confusing at first, but let me just explain that to you. Um, In the 1600s, 1700s, when scientific method and scientific experimentation was really developing. Um, Robert Hooke 
did some experiments, and he came to the conclusion that light is a wave. Light has wavelengths, and, and light behaves like a wave in how it uh, handles its different structures and its different movements. Um, during that time, Isaac Newton, among other things, dealing with gravity, he also did some studies on light, and he came to the conclusion that light is a particle, that, that light is, has particles to it that moves through um, uh, space. And, and these two men famously debated about a lot of things. They really had a, quite a contentious relationship. Uh, but, but the question still remained, is, is light a wave or is light a particle? And experiments were going back and forth and back and forth, and sometimes light as a wave was winning the day, and sometimes light as a particle was winning the day until we got um, to the 20th century. And this man, Albert Einstein, began to do some experiments, and he concluded this, light is a wave and a particle. He said it's both. He said it behaves like a wave and it behaves like a particle, and, and both things are true. And he began to do experimentation um, and, and began to popularize this, this idea that, that light is a wave and a particle, and out of this, quantum physics came, and um, out of this, we kind of understood what, uh, what a neutron was. Uh, but it's all because of this idea that light is not a wave or a particle, it's a wave and a particle. Well, this was fine until Robert Millikan came along, and Robert Millikan, a scientist, said, it can't be both. It absolutely can't be both. And so he started doing experiments to try to prove that Einstein was wrong, that light is a wave and a particle. After doing all of his experiments, he ended up proving that Einstein was right. Yes, it is. And then, in an interesting turn of fate, um, both Einstein and Millikan won the Nobel Prize in physics for this discovery. Um, Light is a wave and it's a particle. Did God choose me or did I choose God? It can't be both. Yes, it can. Um, God chose me, Romans chapter 9. I have to choose God, Romans chapter 10. Both things are true. Now, if you ask me, and in the picture from the Sistine Chapel, um, uh, the, the finger of God is the one that's reaching a little bit more. I'm going to tell you God is the initiator. God initiates the reach. We respond in faith. But it's true that, that I choose God, and God chooses me. And Romans 9, 10, and 11 tries to put all of this together. Now, Romans chapter 11 is going to be all about um, what I'm going to call holy horticulture, and most of that is going to come next week. But let me review 9, 10, and 11 and kind of put it together. And remember, the reason I'm doing this review is because the section is designed to teach us God can be trusted. You can trust God to do everything he said, save you, sanctify you, glorify you. And if you look at the evidence in the Bible, there is clear evidence that God can and should be trusted. And that's what he does in Romans 9 through 11. In chapter 9, he, he looks at God's past relationship with Israel and how he chose and hardened different people. In chapter 10 that we looked at last week, we see God's present relationship with Israel and how he has made the gospel available to them but they rejected it. In chapter 11 that we'll look at this week and next week, we see God's future relationship with Israel and how they still have a future. Um, and we'll look at all of that. Here's another way to look at this. In chapter 9, we see God is sovereign. And you see that in God's work with Israel in the past. God is sovereign. He's in control. 
in chapter 10, God is fair. He got the message out and they rejected it. And so he's fair to reject them. God is fair. But what we're going to see in Romans chapter 11 over two weeks is that God is faithful. Um, There is a future for Israel. And God has been faithful to Israel to preserve a remnant through this entire time. Just to review, and again, I'm reviewing all of this so we have this solid basis to say, can God be trusted? Yes, he can be trusted because he's sovereign, he's fair, and he's faithful. And we need to understand that because in in a world um, where I think the question is not so much we don't trust God, it's that we trust ourselves. I want to push us back to the ultimate place that our trust should be. In Romans chapter 9, Paul starts off with this, Uh, discussion of Israel and saying they were given all these great privileges, the law, the prophets, um, the patriarchs, Christ came through them. They had this great privilege, but then they missed the point. When the the promises came to fulfillment in Jesus, they rejected it. Then he talks about God's election, and he uh, shows that God's election has a purpose. Um, God is a potter, and he can shape the clay any way he wants, but he's doing that to bring glory to himself, to demonstrate his sovereign power, and to proclaim his name. His sovereign purposes all have, a, have a, a great purpose. We'll see that again in this passage, that the purpose is to demonstrate his mercy. At the end, he concludes, the Jews missed the grace, and the Gentiles have now actually received that grace. God is sovereign through that whole process. Um, Doug Moo summarizes it like this. In his first response to the question of God's faithfulness, can he be trusted to the promises of Israel, Paul explained what those promises did not mean. Specifically, they do not guarantee salvation for all the physical descendants of Abraham. Just because you're Jewish doesn't mean you're in. God has not bound himself. He's free to choose only some Jews to be saved and free to save Gentiles. God's sovereign to choose just some Jews and even open the door to the Gentiles. Because God is sovereign, he can do what he wants. In chapter 10, um, Paul begins again in the first section by telling us that these Jews were zealous. They were intense about um, what they wanted. The problem is their zeal was directed the wrong way. Their zeal was about their performance, not about finding God by grace through faith. In in verses 5 through 15, Paul goes through this long series of sequences to show God did get the message out. God, God sent the message through the prophets in the Old Testament, through Paul in the New Testament. God sent the message out. They just didn't receive it, and they're responsible for their rejection. God's fair. He got the message out. God is fair. They rejected it, so God has rejected them. And Israel's rejection of God's gracious salvation is, is really a pattern that you see throughout history. He goes back to these Old Testament quotations, and he said, look, even in the Old Testament, they kept rejecting God's gracious provision again and again, and they've done it again in Jesus. Tom Schreiner says this, It isn't the case that unbelieving Jews lack zeal for God. The problem is that their zeal had become a cloak for self-righteousness, so that instead of submitting to God's righteousness by faith, they tried to establish their own righteousness. They made it about their own performance, rather than about God's gracious provision and His promises that they simply accepted by faith and then showed the expression of that through their obedience to Him. On the positive side, those who call on the name of the Lord and believe in him are saved. And in Romans 10, 14 to 21, Paul explains that Israel had heard the message and they should have believed. God was faithful to do his part. He was fair. They have rejected him. Which leads us to Romans chapter 11. And here's kind of just my summary of of the points that are going through here. Um, In the first 10 verses, Paul's going to say, A remnant of Israel has always responded to God's message of grace. There's always been a remnant of Israel. So God's faithful. 
Um, there's been some people who've always been responding. Then he's going to move on and say, now the Israelites have rejected Christ, but that's opened the door for the Gentiles to come in because God is now no longer working within the Jewish nation. He's working within the church. Uh, the Gentiles or the Jews had the opportunity to be a part of that as well. They continued to have an opportunity to be a part of that as well. But it's mostly the Gentiles who are coming into the church. But Israel's rejection of God's gracious salvation isn't permanent because there's a future for them. We'll talk about that more next week. There's a future for them, and there will be a restoration of Israel, not just because they're Jewish, that's never the case, a restoration of Israel because they will eventually come to faith in Jesus Christ. He concludes with this doxology (laughs) that we can't fully understand God, but we need to praise Him because He can be trusted. This is what's going on. Al Ross says about chapter 11, Paul's argument can be traced in five steps. A discussion of the remnant that is today finding salvation. Some people today are finding salvation. But an acknowledgement that the majority are blinded by the tr- uh, to the truth. He follows this with the reason for setting aside national Israel. Why, did, why, are, is, why is Israel set aside? So the Gentiles would come in. And a reminder of the promised restoration of God's salvation program to Israel. The Israelites are going to come back in. All of which is bound up in the mystery and wisdom of God. This is the flow of chapter 11. Another way you can think of it is there's two questions. He asks a question in in verse number 1, and he asks another question in verse number 11. The question he asks in verse number 1 is, did God reject his people? The answer is no, because there is now, and Paul's going to say in his life, and there always has been in the Old Testament, a remnant of people that God has not rejected because the Israelites have always had a remnant of people who did trust him. He's going to give you the example of now and in the Old Testament. Then in chapter 11, he's going to say, well, did the Jews fall beyond recovery? Has it been a permanent rejection of them? His answer, once again, no. Their rejection opens the door for the Gentiles, and it will eventually be reversed when the, is, when the Jewish nation returns to Christ. Now, a lot of complicated things going on in this passage, and I had too much time on my hand last week. So I've got four um, resources for you that you can get online or you can pick up out at the Connection Center. Um, one of them um, is about predestination, free will, and the nature of light. It's actually a little bit more on that story of um, uh, Albert Einstein. And, and you can pick that up and, and see how that the parallel between God chose us, I chose God, and um, lights a particle, lights a wave, fits together. Um, there's another longer article by Frank Thielman that really applies the truths that are in chapter 10. Um, there's an application uh, by Chuck Swindoll that really deals with how sovereignty really provides you freedom. God is sovereign, and you can rest in that, and that allows you to have freedom. And then there's finally an article I'd really encourage you to read by Doug Moo on missions. Uh, and he really deals with uh, a correct application of uh, Romans chapter 10. But we're going to look at chapter 11. Um, John Stott gives a great summary of of Romans chapter 11. Here's what he says about the whole chapter. So then, the rejection of the Jews was neither total nor final. That's the theme of this chapter. There is still an Israelite remnant in the present... And there's going to be an Israelite recovery in the future, which will itself lead to blessing for the whole world. Here's the flow. Has God rejected him? No, because there's a remnant. And is it final? No, because there's going to be a recovery. But in the middle of all of that, we are living in this time where the doors open for the Gentiles 
to come in and to become the people of God. So he's going to start with this question of, of a remnant, and he's going to talk about Israel, God's chosen people. And again, let me bring this back to the, the place where I want us to be in all of this discussion that's going to get complex here in just a minute. But remember, God can be trusted because Israel's rejection is not universal. It's not as if God said, I'm going to work with the Israelites, now I'm done with them. Because that would open the door to say, well, is he going to be done with us? No, he's not universally rejected them. He only rejects those who don't have faith. And there's always been some who've had faith in him. So this section, these first 10 verses, basically uh, are going to unfold like this. Paul's going to say, um, I'm an evidence that there's a remnant. And in the Old Testament, there was a remnant, like in Elijah's time. Uh, and the Old Testament also gives ample support throughout it that, that God chose some and he hardened others. And there were some who were always chosen. That's what he's going to say. So let's, let's see how Paul unfolds this. I ask then, his first question, did God reject his people? By no means. He, he says this strongly in Greek. It's, it's a strong phrase. Meganoita. Um, a couple of different ways you can say no. Uh, the stronger way is may instead of ooh. He says meganoita. May it never be. God forbid. By no means. God has not rejected his people. And here's his, his evidence. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God didn't reject his people whom he foreknew. God hasn't rejected his people. Look at me. I'm one of those people from the Old Testament who has become a believer. And I'm a part of the family of God. So he says, first of all, evidence number one, I'm going to enter into evidence myself. I'm a Jew and I'm a believer. That's what Paul says. Then he's going to go to the Old Testament. Don't you know what Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I've reserved for me 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Um, Doug Moo says, uh, we need to pay careful attention to the Old Testament context from which Paul's quotations come off, and the context will explain or elucidate his use of the words we find in the text. Um, it, the Old Testament context of this quote is 1 Kings 18, 19, 20. Um, if you'll remember, um, Elijah is a prophet, and um, as a prophet, he is um, trying to bring revival to the nation, but during his lifetime, um, Ahab, a wicked king, a Jew, a wicked king had, had taken the throne and had married Jezebel, who's a Canaanite woman. So you've got a Jew and a, and a pagan who have married together, and they are leading the nation astray. They're leading the nation away from worshiping Yahweh to worshiping Baal. And, and they have set up a whole system of the prophets of Baal who are trying to get the people to, to worship Baal. And Elijah just, he can't stand it anymore. And so um, he, he throws down a challenge to Ahab and he says, listen, Yahweh's the supreme God and we need to worship him. And, and so they, they have this showdown on Mount Carmel. Um, and, and basically what happens is the prophets of Baal and Ashtaroth, they were consorts, uh, the male uh, god of the thunderstorm, Baal, and uh, his wife, Asheroth, were the two who, who were being worshipped. Those two gods of the thunderstorm who brought fertility to the land um, were being worshipped. And um, what 
Elijah says is, meet me on Mount Carmel and, and let's see who can really um, bring a thunderstorm with some fire in it. And so he challenges them and the prophets of Baal gather on the mountain and they gather on the mountain and um, Elijah says, you go first, you call down fire from heaven because, you know, your gods, Baal, Asheroth, they bring thunderstorms with lightning. So let's see some of the lightning, go for it. Um, they put all the sacrifices out there. The prophets of Baal scream and yell and uh, they uh, cut themselves and uh, eventually uh, Elijah says, hey, you know, maybe you need to scream a little louder because maybe he's gone to the bathroom. Maybe that's where he's at. Scream louder. The, door, the door's probably closed. Maybe he can't hear you. Finally, Elijah says, he's not listening. My chance. So Elijah says, hey, take all that altar. Let's, let's put a bunch of water on it and a bunch of water around it, and then I'll pray. Elijah prays. Lightning comes down out of heaven, lights it all on fire, burns it up. Obviously, Elijah has won. The prophets of Baal are scattered. But Ahaz doesn't give up. Ahab doesn't give up. Ahab decides, you showed me up. I'm killing you. And so Ahab, the Jewish king, is trying to kill the prophet. <laughs> and Elijah says, I'm all alone. God, you've left me out here. You've stranded me. Yes, you, you brought fire down from heaven, but I'm all alone. And, and God said to him, hey, you're not alone. There's a remnant. There's 700 not just believers, but there's 700 other prophets, and they're, they're ready to go. Paul's point is, remember the story of Elijah. There was a remnant back then, and yes, the entire nation was being led astray by a wicked Jewish king and his pagan wife, but even in the midst of that, being led astray, there was a remnant that was there. Paul's going to apply this. So too... At the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Here's his summary. Just like there was a remnant back then out of God's grace, now there is a remnant. And, and look how many times he repeats it's by grace. A remnant that is chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it can't be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. It's all about grace. It's all God's gracious provision of of choosing us and forming us and getting the message to us. Pause for a moment of application here in the middle of the message. The remnant exists by grace, and we're part of the remnant if we have faith in Jesus Christ. Our performance doesn't count. It's not based on works. If it's based on works at all, then grace isn't all grace, and grace is all grace. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. God graciously gives us the gift. We simply receive it. Paul's not finished with Old Testament illustrations. What then? What the people of Israel sought earnestly, they did not obtain. They were, they were looking for a relationship with God, but they didn't attain it because they wouldn't receive God's grace by faith. The elect, the elect among them did, but others were hardened. There were others who, who, um, who God hardened in their unbelief. And Paul's going to use the Old Testament to prove that too. Doug Moo says the Old Testament quotations in 11, 8, and 10 which are pretty complicated, you're going to see in just a moment, provide biblical support for the idea that God hardens people. Paul, following Jewish precedent, quotes from every part of the Hebrew canon, the law, the prophets, and the writings. The quotation in verse 8 is a composite. Basically, here's what Paul is doing. He's grabbing pieces, parts of quotes from the Old Testament that all in their original context fully explain and support what he's saying. But he's grabbing a piece from the law, a piece from the prophets, and a piece from the writings. The reason he's doing that, let me explain. If you walked into my office uh, 
back on the other part of the building. If you walked in and you turned to the right and looked up high, there's all of my old Bibles, okay? They're uh, the, the Bibles that I don't really use anymore, but, I mean, nobody wants them. <laughs> um, but you can't throw away a Bible, so they're up there. They're on the top shelf. Um, up there as well, there is a copy of the Jewish Publication Society version of the Bible. It's called Tanakh. Um, it's in three volumes, three separate volumes. The first volume is the Torah, the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The second volume, Nevi'im, is the prophets. And it's a different grouping of the prophets, but it has most of the things we think of as the prophets, a little bit, a few other books that you would go, why is that in there? And we could explain it. Then there's a third volume called the writings. And the writings are Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, those kind of things that are in the writings. Um, What Paul is doing is he's grabbing a quote from the law, from the prophets and the writings, each part representing this has been true throughout the entire story of the Old Testament. So here's, here's what it looks like. Um, what then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but others were hardened. And here's the evidence that throughout the Old Testament, God had elected some and hardened others. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. The first part of that quote begins in Deuteronomy 29. Then he's got one little part from Isaiah, 20, from Isaiah 29. And then he moves on to finish in Deuteronomy again. So he's got law and prophets, and he's putting, putting them together because the verses are saying similar things. And David says, now he goes to the writings in the Psalms. This is Psalm 69. And may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs bent forever. Um, if you just take these verses like that, they kind of go, ah, and you move on and you just go, uh, he knows something I don't know. Let me see if I can make it a little bit more clear. And here's why I'm trying to locate it and make it clear for you is because when you understand this, you understand God can be trusted (laughs) because all this stuff in the Old Testament is not new. God was faithful to Israel in the Old Testament. There was a remnant that received his message by grace through faith. That's always been how salvation has been. And there's been a group that's rejected that and been hardened. And that's true today. So here's how these quotes work. Um, From the law, Deuteronomy 29.4, basically he's saying, the current situation is just like in the days of Moses. When the Israelites saw great miracles and didn't follow God and were made spiritually dull. Um, There's a remnant there that is being talked to. In Deuteronomy 29, um, Moses is giving his final charge to the Israelites before they go into the promised land. This is the, the remnant of people who came out of Egypt. But most of that entire generation died during the 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Basically, you've got Joshua and Caleb, who are the remnant that are left, that, that really received the message by faith. So, so speaking to this new generation and this new group of people, because the old group of people 40 years earlier got to the edge of the land at Kadesh Barnea and said, we don't trust God enough to do this. God said, okay, you're going to die in the land. And he gave them a hard heart. They, they were hardened until the remnant actually goes into the land. And he says, just like that time, these people who came out of the land saw all these miracles. They saw great things, but they rejected God. But there was a remnant among them. The quote from Isaiah 29, 
Um, this is a very prophetic section of, uh, of Isaiah, and he, he's basically saying the current situation is just like in the days of Isaiah. When the Israelites, and specifically he's talking about Jerusalem, people in Jerusalem, had these great prophetic visions from Isaiah and these other prophets, and they didn't follow God, and they were made spiritually dull. <laughs> um, Moses' generation saw miracles and didn't respond. God hardened them. Um, what, what you'll see if you go back to Isaiah 29 is Isaiah is saying, you're going to be hardened, although there's going to be a few of you who are going to, as a remnant, you're going to respond to this message. Then finally, when you go to Psalm 69, if you read the whole thing, he's trying to say this, the current situation is just like in the days of David. When he prayed that the, advantage, the advantages of his enemies would be turned into the traps for their defeat, and he was delivered. Psalm 69 is a a long psalm in which David basically says this. God, I'm being attacked. I'm innocent. These people are attacking me. And I'm praying that the advantage they have over me, you would turn their advantages into the reason for their defeat, and you would deliver me. Now, this passage gets applied to Christ about 20 times in the New Testament because Christ is being attacked when he's innocent. Um, Christ is delivered, and Christ is the deliverer. Um, and so it, it has great significance. But the, the point he's trying to make here is, just like David, he was being attacked, but he was delivered. There are people who um, are, are going to be on the attack against the gospel, but God will deliver some. But the others are going to be hardened. And the word for hardened there, it's, it's a word for a callous. Um, it, it's a, they, they get hardened, they're unresponsive. Spiritually, the, the metaphor is they're just... They're obstinate. They will not respond to all that God is trying to do. And so he's summarizing all of this. He's, he's, he's saying, listen, there's always been a remnant. There is one now in me. There were remnants throughout the Old Testament. But throughout the Old Testament, God was also hardening people who didn't respond to him. God is being fair, but he's being faithful to his people who are responding. Doug Moose says, as Paul has neatly summarized the situation in 11.7, the preaching of the gospel has divided Israel into two groups, the minority, the remnant, who've obtained salvation by grace through faith, and the majority, who've been hardened. Paul now asks whether the situation is permanent. His basic answer, no, it's not. Now he's going to get to his second question. And that leads us to this new kind of group of people that God's going to be working with. And again, God can be trusted because he's always had a remnant. He's always been faithful to the people who will respond to him. And God can be trusted because Israel's rejection of the gospel has a reason to it. There's a reason that Israel rejected the gospel in the purposes of God. Here's how Paul develops this. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Is God finished with them forever? Not at all. Once again, meganoita. May it never be. No way. You're coming to the wrong conclusion. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But their transgressions means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles. How much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Let me develop a couple of things here. First of all, um, he's saying because they have rejected, it has opened up the door for the Gentiles to come in without any of the Jewish trappings because the Jews haven't brought any of that along with them. Um, God's purpose in bringing the, the Gentiles in is so that the, the Jewish people would look at the blessings the Gentiles are getting and go, hey, that was supposed to be for us, and they would be jealous enough to respond to Christ. 
And then he's going to say something I'll develop more. And if their transgression means the door's open for us, and that's glorious, how much more glorious will it be when the Jews finally come to faith in Jesus Christ? And again, he's not saying that all Jews will be saved in the fact that every single Jew, just because they're Jewish. He made that clear in chapter 9. Just because you're Jewish doesn't mean you're in. But he is saying there is going to be a time when there will be a great Jewish revival because the church will eventually do what it's supposed to do, and that is make the Jews envious. We will live in such a great relationship with God that they want to have the blessings we have. I'm sorry, but Alan Ross says this. Unfortunately, the church has done very little to make Jewish people jealous, to make them want the Savior. In fact, many times the gospel has been presented as triumphalism. You had it and lost it. Now we have it. And Jesus isn't even presented clearly as a Jewish Messiah. Folks, here's the point. (laughs) Do we live in such a way that Jewish people would say, actually, I want what you've got. You have peace with God. You have access to God that, that we don't have. You're, you're living within the blessings of God. And by the way, I don't mean prosperity and that kind of stuff. Most of the Jews got more than, of that than we do. That's not how we make them jealous. We make them jealous because we live lives that are compelling, that are winsome, that they would look at and say, I'd like to have that kind of relationship with God. We're not doing a very good job of that now. It's why there's not many Israelites who are coming. But there's going to be a time... God will get a hold of the church. There'll be a time when we live in such a way that the Jews will go, wait, they have a relationship with God that was meant for us. If you want to be challenged on that a little bit more, there's another resource out there by Chuck Swindoll. Um, It's called Moral Pagans and Immoral Christians. Uh, It's really challenging, and I would encourage you to read it. He's going to go on and talk about this opening up of the gospel to the Gentiles. I'm talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am apostle to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arise my people to envy and and save some of them. Paul's going, I'm the guy who's taken the gospel to the Gentiles, and I want the Gentiles to receive it, but I'm hoping secretly along the way that the Jewish people are going to get jealous of all this. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what would their acceptance be but life from, from dead? Um, you know, I, I would love for the Jewish people to come back. It would be as if they're, they're bringing, being brought back to life, like a resurrection, and he's alluding to the resurrection there. Um, Paul, Paul is saying this. My calling in my ministry is to the Gentiles, and, and that's what I've given my life to. But I'm hoping along the way that this ministry to the Gentiles will cause the Jews to go, that was meant for us. And and our whole study on the whole book of Acts really demonstrated that. Paul takes the gospel to the Gentiles, but all along the way, he keeps stopping and talking to the Jews, going, you can be be in on this too. Please, why don't you get in on this? He's going to make this connection and, and say it's all connected to this whole program God had. If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. It's a complex reference, but he's basically saying this whole thing started back here. The, the, the beginnings of this started with God's promises to, to the nation through Abraham and the covenant that was made from him. And that covenant was originally a covenant that was going to bless all the people. God told Abraham, you know, through you, all the nations are going to be blessed. The whole thing was to bless everybody. And he says, so that blessing was supposed to go to all the branches. 
Then he's going to talk about this thing. I'll develop it more next week. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share the nourishment, nourishing sap from the olive root, don't consider yourselves to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You don't support the root, but the root supports you. God's plan, he started with Israel. <laughs> They've been broken off because they, they rejected And you've been grafted in. God did allow you to come in, but it, you're supported by this root um, that is rooted in the Old Testament in the nation of Israel. Um, a couple pictures real quickly here. This is um, olive trees. They're, they don't grow around here, but they're, they're, um, they're big and sturdy. They grow um, all over the Mediterranean, and particularly even in arid spots, they grow. The, the problem with a, an olive tree is it can grow and be sturdy, but eventually it can get to a point where it's not producing fruit. And, and so what can happen is to, to preserve the sturdiness of the base and, and the roots that are, that are bringing in the nourishment in the base, they'll often do this and they'll graft in a, a fresh branch that will now produce fruit, but it's, it's down on that base. And what he's saying is we as the church, we're, we're grafted in. And he's going to say, what a great you know, privilege we have to be grafted in to this base that we get all the nourishment from, the, the Old Testament and all, all the, the blessings that God promised to Abraham that now have been fulfilled in Christ. We are, we are rooted in all of that, and that's where we get our nourishment. But he's going to say, now, there's coming a time when the, the original branches that were broken off are going to be grafted back in. Here's what he says. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Don't be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Don't get all arrogant and full of yourself. God's got a plan, and we'll talk about it next week, for the future of Israel. And it's not a plan to bless them because they're Israelites. It's a plan to bless them because they will come to faith in Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, again, salvation is always by grace through faith. Even in the Old Testament, they were not saved by observing the law. They were saved by grace through faith in the promises of God and believing his promises that were yet to come, looking forward to how God would do that. They didn't know all the details. It gets slowly clearer through the Old Testament. We're saved by grace through faith in the promises of God that we now know were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The law was how they related to God. Once the, the law isn't how they were saved. The law is basically now that you're saved, when you sin, what do you do? Here's a sacrificial system that gets you there. Frank Thelman says this, It might seem natural for Gentile believers in Rome to gloat in triumph over the irony that they had actually uh, attained what Israel's heritage should have led them to receive, or that God had hardened Israel so that the gospel might go to the Gentiles. Here Paul forbids such triumphalism by pointing out the fundamental theological misunderstanding that such an attitude would represent. Gentile believers have only obtained the righteousness of God through their attachment to Israel's heritage, and that heritage contains God's unbreakable promises to Israel. Don't get arrogant because you're, you're getting your nourishment from the whole plan that God had for Israel. I'm going to bring this to a conclusion by putting something together here. here here's the complex plan of God that he's trying to, to show for you. God graciously chose to bring salvation through Abraham, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. 
God said, I'm going to work through the, the nation and through Abraham to bless all the world. Salvation's going to come through Abraham's family. And salvation's always been by grace through faith. But the Jews eventually rejected that salvation when it came to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The Jews rejected it, and then unworthy Gentiles flooded into the church. Ultimately, Jews will become jealous of the faith of the Gentiles. We'll talk about that next week. And then unworthy Jews will flood into the church. God's plan is to work this out, work with the Jews. They blow it, so I work with the Gentiles. And then I'm going to bring the Jews back in so that everybody understands it's all because of mercy. God's whole plan is to demonstrate it's all about his mercy. Mercy to the Jews, mercy to the Gentiles. So how would we apply that? Let's remember, we're all recipients of grace. None of us is more or less worthy than any other. So no boasting. And let me, let me stop and, and make clear. I don't think many of us have a problem of going, yeah, we're better than the Jews. We just don't think that very often. But who do you think you're better than? What group of sinners do you throw in the group of, yeah, they really deserve to be rejected by God? It's always by grace. It's always about God's mercy. And we are recipients of the same grace and the same mercy that everyone throughout history has been the recipient of. An undeserved salvation that God made possible through Jesus Christ. So there should be no boasting. Now I'm going to go to the end of this and um, get where where Paul lands this. Here's, Here's how Paul ends it at the end of the chapter. I'm going to cover the intervening part next week. He ends by saying, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Not me. I'm trying, but I don't get it all. And who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You can trust him and you should praise him. And God's working in the past, in the present, and in the future with Israel, lets you know you can work him. There's always been a remnant, and there's a future. And God has graciously and mercifully opened the door of salvation to the Jews in the past, the Gentiles in the present, the Jews again, all because of what Christ has done for them. And God's made that message available. So where do we go with that? Some next steps. What, what, are, what can we do? Well, first of all, I've been telling you, you can trust God. Do you really? Analyze where your trust really lies. Are you trusting God or are you trusting you? Are you trusting um, the decisions that politicians make about our economy? Where's your trust really lying? Well, And do you trust them with eternity? Because you can't earn that. You, you can't earn eternity. That is by grace, through faith, in the finished work of Jesus Christ, validated by the resurrection. That's the only way you can secure eternity. But do you trust him for your future, for, for next week, next year, five years from now, ten years? Are you looking at, at him to, to provide for your future? Or are you relying on um, some other cultural situation or family situation? Do you trust him with day-to-day provisions? Do you trust him that he's got enough to get you through today and through tomorrow and the challenges you're going to face? The last challenge I'd like to give you is to make a a plan to read the Bible with a mental highlighter looking for the faithfulness of God, because that's what Paul's doing. 
Paul's going, can you trust God? Has he been faithful? Yes. And he goes to the Old Testament. He goes, look how God has been faithful through the Old Testament. He's always had a remnant. He's always got them the message. A lot of them rejected it, and that's on them. But I made the message available. You can trust God. Read your Bible with, with that in mind. We can't understand it all. But we can trust him. Because he's sovereign and he's good. And he's got it all worked out. Father, I pray that you would uh, encourage us with your word. Father, I pray that you would um, allow us to rest in your sovereign control of the past that you have already made clear. And you've made it so clear (laughs) that we can trust what you say about the future. And that is that you're going to make good on all of these promises to Israel and to us. And so, Father, I pray that you would anchor us in our trust for you. Father, I pray that you would um, remind us of the hope that we have in you. And, Lord, I pray that our lives would make others envious, um, not of our wealth or our homes or our cars, but envious of our relationship with you. And Father, I pray that that would make Jesus being proclaimed easier. And that only happens through the power of the Holy Spirit. Make that so. We pray that in Christ's name.